Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos, HSI, familia, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Que Pasa, HSIs. I am so excited to launch this podcast created with and for HSI practitioners and scholars. I have been dreaming about this podcast for several years, and I'm thankful that I finally had the creative time, energy, and team to make it happen. I want to send a big shout out to Alan A.C. Williams for all the behind-the-scenes production work, Estefania Toledo for promoting the show, and Imani Chapman for helping me move my dreams into reality. It is not by chance that the inaugural episode of Que Pasa HSIs is available on September 12th, 2012, which is the first day of HSI week. According to the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities, or HACU, HSI week is a time to host campus activities that heighten awareness of the important role HSIs play in improving access to education and advancing equity for traditionally underserved students. What better way to do that than with a podcast dedicated to HSIs and the students they serve? In this first episode, I talked to Dr. Stephanie Aguilar-Smith, an assistant professor of counseling and higher education at the University of North Texas about federal HSI policies and servingness. Her research examines educational policies, higher education as a hierarchical stratified system, and the ways that these trends shape HSIs. In the episode, we explore the complexities of federal policies that shape servingness and learn about the motivation of HSI grant seekers when they pursue this stream of funding. Before joining the University of North Texas, Dr. Aguilar-Smith worked at several research universities in a variety of areas, including enrollment management, academic counseling, program development and evaluation, and writing center administration. She has a PhD in higher adult and lifelong administration and certificate in Chicano and Latino studies from Michigan State University, holds a master's in public administration with a specialization in higher education administration, and has two BAs, one in journalism and one in international affairs from the University of Georgia. These experiences had led her to question many dimensions of policy and elevated her commitment to demonstrating how structural forces foreclose and open opportunities for individuals and organizations and elevating possibilities for equity-oriented change within racialized organizations such as HSIs. On a personal note, I first met Dr. Aguilar-Smith at the Association for the Study of Higher Education's annual conference, where she asked me to sign her copy of my book, Becoming Hispanic Serving Institutions. I was honored and have watched her trajectory since, also serving on the ASH board with her a few years later. I also served as guest editor for her article in AERA Open entitled Seeking to Serve or Serve with a Dollar Sign, Hispanic Serving Institutions Race Evasive Pursuit of Racialized Fundings, which is available in the show notes. You can follow her on social media to learn more about her research and about the topics we explore in this episode. All righty, let's go ahead and get started with today's show. Dr. Stephanie Aguilar-Smith, thank you for taking the time to be here with today on Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. And thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to chat and learn with you. Awesome. So before we really jump into like what's going on with HSIs and what's up with HSIs, we want to learn a little bit about you because the show is, of course, about higher ed. Hispanic serving institutions are part of the higher ed system. So tell us a little bit about your higher education journey and how you got to where you are from Georgia to Michigan to Texas. Sure. So um, I think maybe like um, most folks, like my life is half happenstance, half intentionality. Um, so when we immigrated to the U.S., and so my family is from Venezuela, um, we moved to Kentucky, um, and then we eventually settled in um, kind of like the metro Atlanta-ish sprawl area, um, not the cool part of Atlanta, okay, like an hour and a half in traffic both ways. Um, and because of financial reasons, I had to stay in state, um, and I had received um, the Hope Scholarship, which covered the cost of um, or the price of attendance for the most part. And so I went to the University of Georgia, um, mostly as a byproduct of just 
A, I had to be within a certain geographic bubble for my home. It was a rule with my parents because I was moving out and they were making a big concession to allow me to move out. Um, yes, yes. That's common. Yeah. <laughs> Latino and, parents. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, that I could afford it, uh, or that we could try to make it work. Um, and then I have in some ways, and or at least in this way, maybe very stereotypical immigrant parents, they were like, you can be a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer, or maybe go into business, right? Kind of how states made decisions and how those bore down on, on individuals. Um, so that's always kind of geeked me out. But because they were like, that's unemployable. And they were um, pretty <laughs> about that. Um, I said, okay, I'll meet you in the middle um, and I'll get some kind of practical um, skill. Um, and so I agreed. I was like, I'll learn how to write and tell stories. Um, and so I got a degree in public relations through the School of Journalism, um, which I don't think totally appeased them, but it was enough to like survive um, uh, family discussions about um, my ability to ever be employed. Mm -hmm. um, which those things have now come to really be really helpful. Um, I think really shaped the way I think about my work, about how like narratives are formed really strategically, how interest groups make informed decision-making. So all those things actually do, do come to be helpful in how mm -hmm. I think now, but at the time, not so much. And I've just had like superb luck. Um, I uh, basically graduated right after the great recession where there was <laughs> really, really, um, few jobs. And then I graduated from my PhD also during the height of COVID um, mm. and all the hiring freezes. So two for two um, mm. with that. And um, so at the time I was like, oh, the market for a job is looking really, um, really challenging. Right. Um, and, and particularly when I graduated. And so I decided to get my master's um, mostly because my mom was like, this is the time, like there's no jobs. And or there's, no, you know, there's a few jobs. Mm -hmm. And um, so I got a, a master's in public administration because, again, I was still interested in how um, kind of more the like, you know, international affairs is like big picture. And so I was like maybe smaller picture, how do actual bureaucrats or street level um, actors do that kind of work? Mm -hmm. um, as part of that, you had to pick kind of a concentration area. I mean, one of the concentration areas happened to be in higher education administration. Um, and I was like, that's cool. I can get into that. Um, and I also had to have an internship. That was a requirement of the, of the degree. Mm -hmm. um, because I had been um, what they call like a fellow during my undergraduate working for the public service and outreach unit for mm -hmm. the University of Georgia, which is really the public service outreach for the state. Um, working with um, Latinx educational programming, um, particularly for high school youth. Um, I had met through that someone in admissions. And so when I needed an internship, I was like, hey, will you give me a job? Because mm -hmm. I need to have this to graduate. Mm -hmm. And um, he did, he gave me a job. That job became, um, that internship became an assistantship. That assistantship became a full-time job when I graduated. Mm -hmm. um, and then it kind of um, exposed me to the different ways or different opportunities within higher ed. Because I didn't even know that was a field you could go into. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, I fell into it and then I fell in love with it. Um, and that just became, you know, a career, um, again, life happens. My partner, um, got a promotion. He's like, we have to move to Mississippi. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what love looks like when it unfolds. I moved, <laughs> moved to Mississippi, um, and I ended up working in academic advising. Okay which I really, really enjoyed. Um, but my boss was very candid. And during one of my evals basically said, if you ever want my job, you have to have a doctorate in hand. Mm -hmm. And that's just the way it is. And um, I was like, well, okay. If that's how it is, then I'm going to start considering like different opportunities um, to look for a doctorate. That ended up me going to Michigan or Michigan State, not the other Michigan, yeah, <laughs> Michigan State. And it was great. Um, and so I ended up in Michigan, um, basically on the advice of some mentors and finances and all the pragmatics of picking a place. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. And then when the, um, again, having to graduate in the, in the COVID bubble, um, where there was very, very limited, um, options on the table, 
Mm -hmm. um, I put out really strategically the ones that I actually thought um, not only would they maybe consider interviewing me, but would I want to live there? Right. Uh, so like that combination um, also because I'm partnered and I needed to make sure it could be a place where he could likewise continue his job. Um, right. I landed at the University of North Texas, which uh, is perfect. Um, I, you know, um, it was a wish list item that the place that I worked at could be an HSI. Um, but mm. I, I, I couldn't make that like a must have. Um, so it was kind of um, a luck, great timing. The call really aligned with my interests and what they needed. Um, and so, and it was close to an inter international airport so I could go home. Mm -hmm. um, so that combination made it like, and also my colleagues are wonderful. So that really helped. <laughs> Shout yeah, out so to colleagues at University of North Texas. <laughs> they are, cool. they're great. So and that's how I ended up in Texas. That's how you ended up there. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And um, I like how you came into higher ed. Um, it very much aligns with what we know from higher ed research that, you know, generally our, our Latinx students, our Latino, Latina students make decisions in much the same way you do in consultation with their parents, right? And 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 also often uh, um, close to home. So um, so I very much think like you know that 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 we have to think about that, right? As we as we get into talking about HSIs, is like that's an important um, consideration, right? Is like that that's how a lot of Latino students, not all, but a lot of Latino students are going to make decisions about where they go. Um, and so you're you know wherever they live, there's only so many choices um, uh, where where they might actually go, which is why HSIs, of course, pop up regionally um, based on where the populations are. So with that, let's transition a little bit to serving this. So neither of your institutions that you went to that you named University of Georgia or Michigan State prior to getting to University of North Texas are HSIs. Um, so tell us about your serving this journey. How did you get into thinking about HSIs and writing about HSIs? Yeah, no, I went to extremely predominantly white institutions, which in some ways made me, I think, more attracted to figuring out spaces um, that were more um, Latinx centered or Latinx, like thinking at least considering that Latinx has existed, right? Um, for, especially um, Michigan is extremely white, um, um, as is a lot of the, not all of the Midwest, right? But Michigan in particular, right? In, in that particular area. Um, it was, um, so, was, so that I actually have a certificate in, in Chicano and Latino studies because I was trying to find research and things that were somewhat related to the Latinx community um, that I could then kind of couple with um, my higher ed background. Um, and so I could kind of marry those like two interests together because I wasn't getting a lot of that um, kind of literature within like strictly higher ed courses, right? Um, but as happened, again, so much happenstance in my life. Um, we had to go on a policy trip. That's part of our curriculum at, or, or was, I think it still is at, at Michigan State um, to DC. Um, and you have to, part of that, they set up a bunch of different meetings with policy actors from different different representatives. And one of the folks was from HACU, so the Hispanic Association of Colleges and Universities. And he talked a lot about HSIs and um, specifically about Title V. And then I was like, I felt like I had this like, like, whoa moment, you know, because mm. I had been looking for something given that my master's is in public admin. I knew I was interested in policy. I always knew I was interested in something related to the Latinx community that always came in as my two bubbles of interest or buckets rather. Mm -hmm. And um, I was like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. Um, because I didn't know anything about them. I'd never been exposed. I'd never read an article. And then that became this like, um, how do you say when you like fall into something and then it's like, keeps going. Oh, there's a, mm. some idiom. Oh, well, I'm terrible at idioms. <laughs> but yeah, it became like this. Um, I was so geekily excited because I finally felt like I found something that made sense. Mm. Um, and one of the best pieces of advice that my advisor gave me, who is um, Dr. Patricia Marin, so I'll shout her out as well. Yes, was, shout out to you, Patricia Marin. Um, she was like, whatever you choose to study, make sure that you love it that like you can be excited about it because it's a really long road if you don't love what you're studying. Mm -hmm. uh, and you need to find, um, you need to be geekily excited about it. Um, it doesn't matter if I am or not. She's like, because you have to spend a long time devoted to that. Mm -hmm. And so 
you keep reading the articles and they're still exciting to you, that's a good sign. Um, and it, and it I was, and so mm -hmm. that is how I fell into the HSI, um, kind of conversation and scholarship was, I always wondered like, what if, like I hadn't been a speaker, like I wonder what I would have studied instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I, I, you know, I think uh, the serving this journey for me, I, I love that question because um, we all have a different way. We sort of came into it. Right. And it doesn't necessarily mean because you went to one or you worked at one. Um, but for you, it's like, you found the policy side of it was, was interesting to you. Um, and I see you wrote a, um, a book review for my book, Becoming Hispanic Serving Institutions. And I distinctly remember when we first met, it was at ASH, the Association for the Study of Higher Ed. Um, and you had just gotten my book and I was excited because the book was new. Um, and I never knew you actually wrote a book review for it. So thank you for that. I came across it as I was um, you know, getting into your work a little bit more. Um, so thank you for that. So tell me a little bit about the book and about how it's informed your work as one of those key pieces that you kind of kept going down. I think of rabbit hole I don't know if rabbit hole is That's the right it. is yeah. it rabbit hole okay <laughs> I was like are you talking about a rabbit hole maybe um but yeah where it's like you just keep going down the rabbit hole and finding more and more and more so tell me more about about the book and how it informed you because I, I love to get feedback right and even just think like how is it helping people think about their own work and and and, and a starting point you know for your your own thinking and whatnot yeah so I love the book um because that's not, not no surprise um thank you <laughs> but I, yeah, but it's not just because it's on HSIs. It's like how it's laid out and how it's written. Um, right. Cause it, there's a bunch of stuff that's on HSIs and, you know, this one I like in particular because it's, it's something I can keep reading and go back to. Mm -hmm. um, and also, um, as a, you know, I'll talk about how it informs my work, but it, it's just, it's such a useful, um, text in general, because I think it can speak to broader audiences in ways that a lot mm -hmm. of academic books fail to do well. Mm. Um, or, you know, we talk really great to three people. It's hard to talk to lar like people large and this book excels at that. Um, and so much so that I find, I just got asked to teach a special topics course on MSIs or minority serving institutions when I come back from parental leave. Um, and I'm assigning the text um, for my students. Woohoo! Thank I, you. Yeah. But I also think cause it's one that like, it's a great conversation starter, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think accessible in the sense that um, students can really resonate with it and understand what you mean. Mm. Um, but I, in terms of like the actual text, um, for me, it's chapter one. Mm, okay. Um, that chapter is especially helpful because I think you do a, a really nice job of um, talking about um, the racialization process that happens with HSIs and how they can be understood as racialized organizations um, mm -hmm. and um, um, institutions, right? Organizations and how they, but yeah, how they're still like within this really, um, within a field, right? That really values whiteness and how that comes to bear down on the way they're evaluated, um, judged, resourced, right? In comparison to white dominant standards. And I think that it's a very useful, not only reminder, but way to explain that to other people, right? Um, mm -hmm. It also helps when I'm thinking about my own work about, you know, I think sometimes there's an assumption like, uh, just like if we we're thinking about people, right? You think like, well, as a person of color, I'm not gonna do X thing. But a lot of times people of color, me included, you know, have done things from like really valoring um, white dominant standards, right? Mm -hmm. um, living into those things, much in the same way, like HSI sometimes reify um, white dominant practices. And it, this book helps explain why that might be to me, mm -hmm. or it gives me language to talk about like, why do we see that when people are going after Title V grants that they might be thinking about um, positioning it for all students? Um, I think it does a good job of explaining like why those things might actually unfold within, um, even within racially minoritized organizations. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and so it's, it has informed your work then like reading it was one of those rabbit hole moments. Yeah. I, that first chapter was just so, so good. Well, thank you for that. But I, um, am equally a fan of, of the work that you're doing. Um, I really enjoyed, you know, working with you, um, as you know, guest editor for the AERA open issue, um, and learning about your work, um, through the article, the seeking to serve or serve with the dollar sign, um, and the S Hispanic serving institutions, race evasive pursuit of racialized funding. Um, 
And so you talk a little bit about, well, you talk extensively about the motivation that practitioners at HSIs have for pursuing and applying for HSIs. So tell us a little bit about that article. If no, if the people listening haven't read, give us the plug, convince them that they should read it because uh, I think they should and it's accessible. So we'll drop it in the show uh, link for sure too. Sure. Yeah. So this actually came out of my dissertation, but um, I collected the data while doing my dissertation, but it's not included in my dissertation. It was kind of beyond what I could fit in the disc, if that makes sense. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yep. And so, um, but one of the things that when I was having conversations with these different folks was like, why'd you even go after this money? You know, mm-hmm. it was curious to just, it was kind of separate from my actual dissertation questions. I was just curious, like, like, why were you even going after it? And it was kind of a conversation starter. Um, and so, um, I'm going to take a step back for folks who haven't read it. Essentially, I spoke with um, 29 institutional actors at um, 17 HSIs across the country that were um, either really um, really persistent um, Title V applicants, um, and that's both persistent and unsuccessful and persistent and successful, meaning Mm -hmm. uh, folks that want a lot of grants and folks that tried really hard to win grants. and then also spoke to non-applicants as well. In this study, I was only thinking about applicants. Like, why'd you go after the money? Um, and kind of learned um, that it's complicated. You go after money for a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them make a lot of sense, right? Like some folks were saying, you know, we go after the money because we have to pull, we have to pool money, you know? Um, if you think about, um, sometimes I like to bring things back to people because I think it makes it e- easier to understand. But, you know, when I was a grad student, I was scrappy. You know, I had quit my full-time job. So I was had my GA ship. I was working an hourly job. I was copying any on this. I was hustling, right? Trying to get mm-hmm. all pots of money um, because I felt financially precarious, right? In much the same way, organizations, you know, that are dealing with constant declines in, in public funding um, and not knowing, like, you know, is your state going to cut funding or is it not? You're, you're, when you're dealing with that kind of uncertainty, you're going to try to pull resources um, very much in that kind of resource dependency kind of theory um, perspective. And so they kind of talked about that. You know, they're like, we need to pull money because we don't have any or we're worried we're not going to have any. Mm-hmm. Um, the other ones were in some ways related, right? Like we have these really kind of broad based kind of institutional needs again, when you're dealing with precarity, you're, you're like, I can't invest this little that I have in this thing, even though we, we might really need it because I'm scared that there might be a huge cut and then I need that pool, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of them talked about, you know, we have this program and we know we have interest, but it's really expensive to launch a program. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need, um, this funding as a way to kind of um, meet that gap, right? Um, others talked about, um, Singling legitimacy, and this was really interesting to me. Um, in particular, I think I heard it mostly from folks at community colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, although that could also be a function of the sample, I'd be curious to see if if that applied more broadly. Um, but we're basically saying, like, um, grant seeking, but more so grant getting, um, signals that you're legitimate, right? Like legitimate mm-hmm. schools pull in money. Um, and they pull in big bucks. Um, they pull in these mm-hmm. big federal dollars. Um, and that signals in both, right, that like we're legit, um, but also that we're really part of this HSI space um, mm-hmm. and um, capture these dollars. Um, it was also having to do with kind of like the politics of money getting, um, where institutions said, you know, there's an expectation from either the board of trustees um, or things like that, that you're going after all the pots available to you. Um, and that's what um, real schools do, mm. right? Um, which I was somewhat surprised to hear that. I mean, it makes total sense when I think about the literature, but I was surprised to actually hear it so directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one, not as surprising, um, but basically this idea of um, needing this money to really support students and particularly all students, mm-hmm. right? Where then you could have this kind of trickle down um, effect (laughs) and potentially help also Latinx students. And there was some folks that admittedly said, you know, it'd be great to be able to invest in things that are really specific to Latinx students, but they were, most were very clear that, um, it was for all students and that, um, by proxy, it would help Latinx students. 
Mm -hmm. um, no. So, um, yeah, so basically, I, especially with that last one, to me, it kind of, um, that's where I kind of make the argument, you know, we, there's this capitalization that happens where like you have to enroll, um, you know, you're, you have the minimum 25% of lot next students and Pell eligible students as well. Um, and then you're using that to serve all students kind of subverts to me the purpose of the program. Right. And so it's like, um, yeah, just this capitalization of or commodification of Latinx students for the benefit of the institution as a whole, rather mm -hmm. than thinking about how it might be of particular benefit to the students that make you eligible for that funding. Right. Yeah, I remember just really, you know, digging into the article multiple times, reading it over and over again, and grappling with all those different things you presented, because I think a lot of people do exactly what you said, right? The, I mean, there's research, right? You even cite it, right? Um, Dr. Nick Vargas's work, right? Uh, speaks to that as well. Yours speaks to that of like uh, the idea that they do it very race, race evasive or race neutral, right? Of like, it's going to get to the Latino students because I mean, there's 80% of the students, right? And it's like, okay, yes, but still there's there's even more reason to make it, right? Centered on them for that. Um, and, 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 you know, struggling through that, um, but then also the idea that some institutions really need the money, right? I know we went back and forth on that about like, isn't that the purpose of the funding, right? Like that, that, that HSI's, uh, you know, the HSI funding stream really was because they're HSI's that were struggling, right? Big time struggling and still are. There's a good number that are still struggling. Um, but then this idea that some were going for it for like the legitimacy, right? That it wasn't about necessarily about that they really need the funding, which is the purpose of the, the pot of money, the federal money, but like it makes us an HSI. And if we get four of them, we're like really, really good HSI, right? Like, I guess, I don't know, I don't know. Or we're excellent or we get a seal of excellency or we're super or whatever the newest nomenclature is, right? For meaning that you're a great HSI, which I think we both know none of those things make you a great HSI, right? Probably focusing on your Latino students is going to make you a great HSI. But um, but I loved all those complexities, right? Because you really bring up a lot of those different um, things that we have to stop and pause, right? And think about a little bit um, um, critically. So, so yeah, I, I, I thank you for, for talking a little bit more about it, particularly for those who, who haven't read it. I hope they will read it, but you really broke it down um, nicely. Um, one thing I did want to ask that you didn't really go deep in the article because, you know, it's an article, you can't say a lot, but like, is there anything you would say that, um, what classifies those and I don't remember all the all the ways in which you classified them, but the ones that were really successful at getting HSI grants, what would you say like to an institution that's trying to get it and they're like being unsuccessful? Like what makes for a successful grant getting HSI? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that relates really well to my dissertation. So um, I think there's a, you know, if we, if we talk about this, I can certainly um, shed more, but um the long story short of it is I think what you know, like your kind of institutional knowledge, at least currently, I think comes to be very important, right? Mm. Folks that are um, what we might call legacy HSIs or um, kind of like your um, incumbents, right? To use the technical term, um, they kind of, as one of the participants shared with me, he's like, we know the do's and don'ts. Mm. What they want to hear how they want to hear it what they don't want to hear how they don't want it phrased mm. and like that kind of knowledge in terms of the actual application process is helpful right when you mm. kind of have it's kind of the same like for folks who are maybe more seasoned scholars right the longer you've kind of figured out how you're supposed to respond to a reviewer how you're supposed to kind of frame um, a paper right you're going to have more success later on in your career because you've kind of figured out how it works um I think that's a huge part. I am, though, I say that very tentatively because I am um, curious to know how over time folks that just have much bigger and more complex grant infrastructures, right, can maybe compensate for people's knowledge, right, mm -hmm. whether because it's that they can outsource yeah, it. Organizations right. that um, either have really, really big grants offices, especially as we have more um, Hispanic serving research universities, um, that are mm -hmm. have more developed um, grant infrastructures in place typically, right? There certainly are right. some other schools that do as well, but at the aggregate, um, or that they just have the financial means to be able to outsource expertise, mm -hmm. right? Um, and hire these um, fantastic um, grant writers that are consultants 
um, that are really expensive. Um, right. So they, I think that both of those things together um, really set folks up for success, but I'm happy to talk um, more about that in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get to that. We'll get to the Hispanic Survey Research Universities. Um, I think it's just important, right? Because I, there are people who are trying to get the, the grant, the funding and are unsuccessful because you have those, that population in your sample too, right? So I just was wondering if there's anything distinct, but then when you say that they know the process, right? Better. Um, they're just good at getting grants. It sounds like almost right. Like they're good. At, they could get a grant for, you know, swimming in the ocean. They could get a grant, right? Like something completely off the wall that has nothing to do with HSIs or like, we can do that because we know how to get a grant, right? Not necessarily how to be HSIs. Right. I mean, there's a combo, right? Because some of the folks really talked about, you know, um, yeah, we have a really well-developed grant infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. Or like grant expertise, um, and they were very, a lot of them were very specific about, we also understand exactly what this grant wants. Mm. It's not necessarily a conversation about, we know how to be great HSIs. Um, that's separate, but they were like, we are great at knowing how to get this money. Mm. Um, because we, uh, and, and part of it is like, because they've done it for a long time. But again, these other folks in the sample have also done it for a long time, but unsuccessfully. Um, I think the difference is um, partly maybe a function of just how many times, but also, um, yeah, that they have like folks that have stayed on maybe a while. Like some people talked about, like, we've been working on this for 20 years and it's the same group of us, right? Mm. It's hard to beat that kind of like human capital in terms of people who have been like, we, we got rejected last year. So then we, re- we looked at the reviews and then we retooled it for the next year. And then we also know, and we've built networks, right? So, um, for example, we know that one year we can apply for um, as the primary, and maybe if we get it, then the next year we can be a secondary on a cooperative. Mm. Right. So understanding how to strategically um, also approach the Title V program to kind of double up the monies you can get. Mm. And they were very mm. they were very transparent about that, saying, you know, um, one year we'll go after that one. That means the next year, if we get it, we go after the other one with our partner over here. And they have those systems in place. And also being very, very um, aware and smart about how to think about competitive preference priorities and how to fold right. that into whatever institutional priorities they have that year, right? And being able to say, okay, this is kind of our broad um, aims for the year, let's say. And then the call will come out and then they'll figure out how to put those, as one of them said, we'll figure out how to put them into alignment, mm. right? Right. So there's like this level of strategy um, that I think perennial winners are really good at, which helps explain success in the program. Right. Wow. That's powerful. Now I'm thinking about this need for like multiple levels of consciousness, right? Like just knowing the grant process, knowing the HSI grants, knowing the fact that there's different um, focus each year, right? Even that, not everybody knows that, right? That there's the different um, strategies that the federal government is, is trying to get people to write about, um, knowing all that, and then the servingness piece, right? Which is where I talk, obviously, a lot about the servingness with people, and I don't talk about the everything you just said, right? And and I, I sometimes struggle with that of thinking, am I telling people to lean into like you have to center Latino students, you have to talk about Afro Latino students, Indigenous Latino students, multiple lingual Indigenous Latino students, right? Like I mean, just all these different things, undocumented students. And I never say, oh, you should also really kind of understand the call, right? Um, but you're right, right? Like the, they, they need to understand those technical pieces, um, but being a good HSI should be in there as well, right? Like it should I be would both. Hope. <laughs> I would hope so, yeah. I would hope so too, but I think what we're seeing in the research in yours included mother articles, right? Is like, not necessarily, right? Like you just, you gotta be good at, at, at at writing the grants and getting the specifically HSI funding stream um, without necessarily even talking about Latino students, which is just wild, right? And I think for, for those of us that, who, that, that think a lot about serving Latino students with HSI funding and HSI grants is like, why wouldn't you? <laughs> why wouldn't you send your Latino students, right? Um, we, we can't rely on this trickle-down effect that all boats rise when the tide rises or whatever it may be, right? Like, nah, let's focus on Latino boats right let's lift the the latino boats um 
you know, cause HSI funding allows you to do that. So, yeah. all right. So you said that this uh, project, I mean, I, you know, obviously I've read the article multiple times, so I wanted to talk about it, but you said it wasn't directly your dissertation. So tell us um, what should we be expecting to be coming out next from your dissertation work? What are you working on now? Your fans that are waiting for your next, you know, article to drop, <laughs> tell us a little bit about what's up, what's coming up for us. Sure. Well, um, let's see what happens. You know, reviewer number two has a lot of power these days. Um, so I have (laughs) (laughs) days it feels like, um, but I have two things out, um, that are, um, like I've resubmitted the R&Rs if that makes like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful, but also like, you know, the publication process be what it be. Um, Right. And one of the ones in there that is very, is part of, is a, is a byproduct of my dissertation is really kind of talking through these sources of inequity within the program. Mm. Um, so kind of, it, I, I almost think of it as like an umbrella piece to kind of make meaning of my findings more holistically of my dissertation, but in an article form. Um, but kind of talking about, um, you know, we have this increasingly, some of the things I talk about in my work a lot is that the HSI population as a whole is increasingly diversifying across so many different lines. And yet the program was initially designed 20 plus years ago with a very particular um, understanding of what an HSI was. Um, and we're inc- and increasingly, um, HSIs don't all look like that, right? They're not all public community colleges. Um, they're very, very different. And yet we have a program in which invites everyone, like all HSIs to compete, but with the assumption that they're all the same. So this kind of meritocratic kind of exchange, right, and how it unfolds is, I think, really problematic in the sense that there is potential um, implications for inequity when you have diverse kinds of actors vying for the same opportunity as if they're the same. Um, And so I kind of elevate um, points of um, um, points of inequity or tension points, right? Um, Is it that um, related to finances? Is it related to, um, you know, different, different capacities in terms of institutional knowledge, peer networks, right? Because peer networks take a while to build, right? You don't just have those right away. Um, and so I kind of elevate in that piece, like different, um, um, yeah, just like different moments or different, um, sources rather of an equity within the program when it's designed in this way. And then talk about how we might re-envision this program um, to be more equitable. So that's yes. one piece. I'm very hopeful, but we'll see. Uh, <laughs> I love that piece, by the way. I <laughs> love when like, there's all these, I have all these HSI ideas, like all these things. And that's one I've been wanting someone to write about. I'm like, please, somebody write about this way in which the HSI system is going to reinvent itself, right? The hierarchy um, with is going to, is going to, we're going to see it in HSI. So thank you for doing that work. Cause I've been, I've been waiting for that one for a while. <laughs> that one's an important piece. So reviewer two, if you're listening, please just say yes, just say yes already. We need this in the world. So sorry, go ahead. You were going to uh, tell us a little bit more. Um, and then maybe in just one other one, um, which I actually just submitted, resubmitted the RNR today. So huh, we'll see what happens. Ooh, congrats. Um, is very different. It's a, um, it has been a long-term labor of love. It's a quantitative project in which, um, I used FOIA data. So I'm um, like a freedom of information mm. request, um, to say it out loud, um, to look at, um, all title five applicants and recipients, right, to understand the institutional characteristics that might predict participation in this program and the success in it. Um, So it's an, obviously, like most things, it's an, it's incomplete, I can't account for things that variables don't exist for, right? Right. Um, Right, like, there's a lot of things that happen in the decision making at an institution, like who your leaders are, that there's not really a great variable for that in IPEDS. Um, Right. (laughs) But it's talking about very big picture, like, what kinds of institutional kinds of characteristics might um, be related to participation in the program and then success. And so that one um, will hopefully, um, will also, the reviewer two will fall in love with it again <laughs> um, for the first time. Um, and that will hopefully come out um, soonish as well. Okay. So those are the two that I'm probably most excited about. 
Yeah, I'm excited about that too. So yes, again, reviewer two, if you're listening, just go ahead and let this good information get out into the world because it's stuff, it's important, right? We do need to know um, these sort of like your work is just so so important because it's speaking directly to the federal policy, to the institutions that are trying to figure this out, which is the reality of HSIs. People are all trying to figure this out as like, what's going to make institutions more likely to be able to, to get the funding? Who's more likely to go after it? We know that not all HSIs do go after the funding. Um, I've never seen any data that that shows the percentage that actually do. So if you have those, I'm excited to read that because I, I say that a lot. I'm like, not all HSIs go for the funding, but I don't know the exact number either. So does that more come out in there? Think. Yes, it's more than you would think. That don't really? Happen. Yeah, Like more than 50%? No, not more than 50, but I based, I believe it's about a third. Okay. Yeah. But, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, what I think, I don't want to give away all the goodies, but yeah, it's, no, no, no. <laughs> it's me that there's a subsect of particular kinds that don't, that mm. it is concerning to me. Right. So yeah, it's all great work. And I hope everybody's going to start following your work if they're not already following your work, because it, it, we need to know these sort of things, right? And particularly, your work is speaking to the federal government. So I'm hoping that, you know, I'll be sharing this widely uh, with, with uh, Department of Ed folks, with NSF folks, with the big funders, right, that are, that are, uh, that are currently have HSI uh, competitive programs um, within their, you know, within their agencies. So so all good stuff. Um, so I'm going to jump right into the big question that like, I know we both want to talk about because I said, I said it and you said it. And I think it speaks to this hierarchy a little bit. So talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on this new alliance for Hispanic serving research universities, which includes 20 HSR eyes or what they're calling HSRUs, um, including your own, right? The University of North Texas, which is exciting that y'all are a part of that um, alliance. But when I read this article about this alliance, I immediately thought of your work. I was like, ooh, this feels hierarchy to me. <laughs> so, and I know you're thinking about hierarchy of HSI. So tell me about your thoughts and your initial reactions. So this is the, this is how I feel about it. So on the one hand, like at least my understanding of the alliance, right? And um, I'm willing for it to be challenged and, and complimented, but is that it's really trying to double the enrollment of Latinx doctoral students. I think that's the, right? They want to double, mm -hmm. double the number of Latinx identified doctoral students and then the percentage of Latinx identified faculty by like 30%, right? Or 20%, excuse me, by like 2030. So like on its face, like, those are goals that I, of course I can get behind it. Like no, no way am I going to be like, no, I don't want there to be more Latinx doc students or Latinx doc. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Of course, like those aims are important and, and I, and I support them a lot. Right. I think that that's like both things that high, the field of, of higher education as a whole needs. Right. Um, and I'm at the same time um, really curious to see like how these efforts actually unfold. Right. Like, um, is it like more rhetoric or is it actually going to be more action? Um, there's some of that. Um, and then perhaps I'm a little bit, I'm always a little bit weary um, or suspect of these like kind of pushes for like just numbers um, because I really want to see them in conversations with funding parity. Mm-hmm. Right. That, um you know, if we recruit, let's say we're successful and we being like, as if though I'm part of the, I guess my school is part of the Alliance, but if we're successful, like, um, and we recruit them, like, how do we support them? Like, will we support right. them? What ways will we support them? Um, and then as you were pointing out about this notion of hierarchy, right. Um, it's really kind of, again, this is specifically for, um, HSIs that are considered research universities. Um, and R1s, right? Um, I'm just a little curious or a little um, um, how like these kinds of like alliances might really create or accentuate differences within or among the HSI population um, with it, because this is really just confined again to, to R1 universities, right? And it kind of in some ways like feels similar to me about like the AAU, right? where we have like your best or whatever mm -hmm. um, research universities get 
get put into their special group and they get to do things and get acknowledged in certain ways. Um, and while it's great um, to be both a Hispanic serving institution and a research university, it's also great to be a, an HSI that focuses on teaching. Um, right. <laughs> and it's really great to be um, someone that's focused on serving the community. Um, and I don't, I'm sometimes just because of the way of the hierarchical nature of higher education where research universities always get placed on top. I worry that we might be kind of um, reaffirming that kind of rhetoric, right? Where somehow these ones are better. Um, and they might be more productive in research, but I don't think that that makes you better in any way, right? Mm -hmm. You're you're designed and intended to produce research because that's the function of the kind of institution. Um, but I hope we're all committed to students, right? And that comes in a lot of different kinds of institutional um, contexts, right? That have nothing to do with research. And so that's my kind of tension with it. On the one mm. hand, like, yes, I think the goals are good. And I do want there to be more programs that are inviting and recruiting Latinx doctoral students and supporting them with funding. Right. <laughs> Full funding, um, right. so that's for 12 jobs, okay? Um, and research assistantships, so if they want research assistantships, so just place them doing like getting the coffee, okay? Um, mm -hmm. So these things are good, um, but I'm also really just um, want us to be mindful about how we don't unintentionally create more division within the HSI space where we suggest somehow that um, institutions doing research are somehow better um, so that's my take on it. Yes. Thank you. I knew you were going to have some thoughts on that. I have so many thoughts. Um, and I agree at the surface, it seems like, okay, good goals. Um, I wrote an article a couple years back, um, with one of my grad students, um, Alberto Alvarez Guzman, and we found that the biggest perpetuators of the inequities in graduate enrollment were actually the HSRUs. Um, now, are any of the folks, those presidents um, that are, are leading this initiative, have they read that article? Eh, who knows, right? Like, we don't know if they're actually reading the, the research, but, um, and we didn't make that really clear. It's in there a little bit, but like, you know, what, what actually gets published versus what we know as we're going into the data, um, that became very clear that they were actually, there was the most inequities in um, graduate enrollment, right? So their graduate populations were much wider um, at a lot of those HSRUs. Um, so I agree, hopefully they'll they'll get to do that work. And, and it, it brings back that idea of the, the need for the double consciousness, right? That, that, that you need to be good at, understand what you're good at, like fully funding grad students, do that. <laughs> Bringing in faculty of color and, and providing them with the good, you know, lifestyle that they can thrive in your institution, do that, um, but also, do you understand the servingness construct, right? Do you understand what that actually means to bring in people of color into an institution that's not for them? Um, I'm not, I'm not as, as confident. I don't, you know, it sounds like you're also like not sure about that, that same thing. Um, but it does, it has huge implications for the, for the, the whole of HSIs in general. Um, so thank you for that. And I think with everything HSIs, it's complicated, right? Yeah. It's super complicated. <laughs> It is. Yeah, it's weird how you can both be for something, but um, yeah, both like for, but trepidant. And I think that's probably, um, I think it invites to me a, a possibility for positive change. Um, and I hope that they live into it. Absolutely. I love that. Exactly. I have the same exact sentiment. So, so thank you for that. Awesome. So as you're talking, I think a lot about like, I often wonder with scholars, um, what's the motivation? And a lot of times it's our own identities, right? So how does your own identities come into the research you're doing as, as you're thinking about like challenges in these larger systems of inequity? Um, how do your own identities come into to the research? Yeah, I guess since y'all can't see me and some of y'all might not know me, right? Like um, I'm definitely, I would say like a white passing um, Venezuelan American, and I grew up in a really bilingual household, um, and there was a lot of us, because I'm the baby of, like, six, right, so, like, it was a loud mm. household, um, and so I think when I think about my work in particular, I'm really attentive, um, to how really higher education, but also the HSI space in particular, like, positions and frames that I think you guys, right, mm -hmm. um, because often, not always, I do think there has been some shifts 
Um, and particularly, I think a special issue that came, that's coming, it's like coming out throughout the year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, good job of, of um, showing like, um, or pushing like more of an intersectional focus on HSIs. There often was, a, or has been a very um, Chicanx or um, a Mexican focus within the HSI literature, um, which I think makes sense, right? When we think about the concentrate, like all of that, it's not that it, it understand it. And yet I wonder like, um, like I don't see myself in that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so identify as Latina. Um, and so I always get curious with how that gets, like Latinidad in general gets framed, understood, um, and what it means mm. to serve, right? Um, because, I mean, we say it all the time, but one size really doesn't fit all. Um, and then particularly when you have um, such a pan-ethnic community, um, it becomes hard, right? Uh, to mm-hmm. think about like how we can take that up and what it might mean and what kinds of policies make the most sense. And also that there's a lot of like, um, like within, like they think that we don't, like there's so much difference within the Latinx population with very different political leanings, very different um, like needs, wants, um, statuses, all these kinds of things make it real complicated. Um, and so that's probably how I think about it when I think about my own work is trying to take a moment to at least think, um, particularly because I often think about policy, right? And the way policy is often construed is like, what could, for better or worse, I think we're kind of worse, um, but how it can serve the most people. But like mm-hmm. in most people, I don't often show up. Right. Um, and so um, I try to really think more about, you know, what can equity look like when you have such a diverse group of individuals and, and, organi- and also in this case, organizations. So particularly when I think about HSIs and how like the, all the organizational differences and resource differences among them. So that's kind of how mm. it goes up. It's, yeah, I'm always thinking about there's so much difference. And I think that that's made real to me because while I'm Latina, I'm a different kind of Latina mm-hmm. than what I see in the U.S. context and who my friends have been. Um, so that's how I, I, I see it. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. It speaks to the need um, for intersectionality work, right? When, and and one of the reasons why we did that that call for that special issue um, or that special topic, they don't call them issues because they come out in different issues, um, but the special topic um, was because exactly what you said, right? We, we have this like one monolithic way of thinking about Latino, Latinx, Latine, Hispanic, and it's just, it's not, <laughs> it's just not. So, so thank you for continuing to bring that, you know, into, into the work that, that we're doing around HSIs because we need it. We need a lot of different complex ways of, of thinking about it. So speaking of scholars, who are your scholar, your HSI, um, I would say scholar heroes, um, who do you follow and or who do you see emerging? It's fun to know who's going to be coming up in the, in the HSI scholar world that you, you would shout out. So even though I probably don't want me to toot your own horn, um, Gina, um, <laughs> I, I, but I'll at least say why I like your work. Okay. I think, that makes, I think that makes it, it's not just because you're prolific, right? Um, it's, yeah, it's not just a sheer quantity. It's because there's not a lot of folks, even with, when you think about higher ed more broadly, um, like that take a real orgsy, like org level mm. analysis kind of focus. Um, and you want to find exemplars of people who do that well and do that often so that you can learn, right? right. Um, I'm still early enough in my career where I'm like, and I think I hope I'm always learning, right? Because that's kind of the whole like, mm-hmm. the cool selling points of this kind of job, right? Um, but yeah, that I can look and learn and continue to grow in my thinking about organizational level kinds of analyses, particularly within the HSI context. So for that reason, you know, I'm a little bit of a fan. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's mutual. I'm a fan of your work too. <laughs> for the same reasons, because the org level analysis, like we have to do that org level analysis and not everybody does. Yeah. And I say that saying like, there's a lot of individual level analysis that I think are beautiful, powerful, mm-hmm. But those are not typically the questions I ask. Yeah. Um, um, and it, it's like a both and like both of the kinds of studies are really important. But when I'm thinking about like, how can I do my own work better? Or how can I think in more nuanced ways? It's helpful to have folks that are mm-hmm. doing that. Yeah. Someone um, else who um, I whose work I admire a lot is um, Nicholas Vargas. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, you know, 
he's really race conscious, uses a lot, talks a lot about racialization. Like the race forwardness of his work to me is really powerful and it feels very unapologetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's helped me think about um, my own work. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I really, I think he does an incredible job. I also think, again, sometimes we get stuck in these higher ed um, containers and like being able to mix folks who have different kinds of training, I think makes your work more interesting. Um, and so to learn how he thinks about theory and stuff like that to me is cool. Um, in terms of like more emerging folks, I'll probably say two really quick. Um, I'm gonna shout out my girl, Cynthia B. Mm-hmm. Um, and she recently came out with a piece um, also in the special T- topic, not issue. Topic. Very <laughs> open. And um, partly because I, um, just to give a shout out to this piece really quickly, um, she talks a lot about faculty hiring in general in the, in the course of her work. Um, but I thought it was really cool the way in which she married borderlands theory to talk about how hiring functions as a borderland space, right? Where mm-hmm. insiders allow outsiders in, right? There's like a gatekeeping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, I just thought, yeah, totally, right? Like I've read Borderlands so, in so many different ways and I never thought about it in the context of hiring. Mm-hmm. And I think it speaks to someone who's like a cool thinker when they're able to like take theories that I've seen a lot but use them in really innovative ways to really talk about important issues. Like faculty hiring is super important. We need, especially as we're even thinking about this conversation we just had about the Alliance, but how do we actually recruit more faculty of color? Mm-hmm. And so like those kinds of moves to me were just, I was like, ah, I learned something this week. I just read the <laughs> So like, it was even cooler. <laughs> Me too. I just read it the other day. Same thing. I was fangirling big time. I was like, oh, brilliant. It's, it's, a, it's a really important, brilliant piece. Um, and then someone else whose work, I just think um, is really, just really strong um, is um, Elvira Albrica. And if I said your name wrong, I'm really sorry, but I'm trying. Um, because I, I, in some of the work that I've read of hers, um, she really talks about anti-Blackness within um, the Latinx community and within the HSI context. Um, and I think that that's something, um, it's increasingly, I think we're, we're seeing more conversations around that, conversations around that now. Um, but it, for a long time, I feel like it was something that we got pushed under the rug. Like we didn't want to, we talking about Latinos and Nodal didn't often always we're upfront about the ways in which we um, produce and reified anti-Blackness. And so I think it was really important kind of work to kind of confront some of the things that we need to do better and think better and, and differently about. And so I really appreciate, I've really appreciated some of the articles that she's written because I think she has a few that really kind of pulled that forward. And I'm like, oh yeah. And it's actually made me think about how to have conversations with my family. Um, and, you know, those are not, and I don't know that I would have had the, um, maybe the languaging to be able to explain it as well had I not read her pieces. Yeah. So, um, awesome. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Did you have more? No, those are the two that I'm just like, I mean, there's a lot of folks doing super cool stuff, right? Yeah. One thing that I'm excited about when I think about the HSI space in general is that there are so many more people now writing on HSIs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an increasingly growing body of research. And so I'm like, I want to know who all the new folks are. I don't know who they all are yet. Um, but I, I do know that as I see new and new articles coming out, I'm like, oh, there's more, there's more, there's more, you know? And so like, I'm excited of all the things that I know I will come to learn soon. Yes, I agree. It's exciting time, um, in a scholar space that was nearly non-existent 10 years ago. Um, you know, particularly around empirical, uh, research, it was almost non-existent. There was you know, a few pieces and, and just, it hadn't emerged the way, the way it's emerged really in the last 10 years. So it's exciting. It's exciting time for those of us that are, are really doing this kind of work. Um, so thank you for that. And shout out to all the folks you shouted out there. All my, I'm fans of their, their work as well. So to wrap up the final question, if you could sum up, summarize in like one sentence or maybe two, get pasa HSIs. Mm-hmm. I want to know when, HSIs as a whole will put their money where their mouth is. Ooh, I like that. Okay, that's a good one. I think that's 
And I think there are some that do, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to know when we're going to, when the collective, we can say, by and large, yeah, they do that. Um, and so that's what I'll, I'll leave it with. I think that's what's up. Yeah. I agree. It's totally what's up. So thank you for leaving us with with that. So thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Aguilar Smith. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I'm excited to share with the world the work that you're doing um, for those of you that aren't, those that aren't aren't, um, yet aware. um, Hopefully they'll become big fans and start following your work because you're doing really great work. So thank you. Thank you so much.